to a pleasure podcast for more from our sex podcast collective visit pleasurepodcasts.com thanks for tuning in sluts and scholars is a sex positive shame-free educational podcast where we try to help you talk smart and fuck smarter while we love to give advice and resources please note that this podcast or any emails from us are not intended to be therapy or a replacement for therapy Welcome back to another week of Sluts and Scholars. I'm Nicoletta Heidegger, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and sexologist. And this week, I'm really excited to welcome Andre Shakti. She is a sex educator, performer, advice columnist, and professional slut, love that, living in Baltimore. Uh, she is devoted to normalizing alternative desires, destigmatizing sex workers and their clients, and not taking herself too seriously. She wrestles white men into submission. I gotta hear more about that. And is is the reigning polyamory pundit in her weekly non-monogamy advice column, I Am Polyamorous and So Can You, which you can visit and submit questions to via IamPoly.net. Also, Andre is the proprietess of Sanctuary Virtual Strip Club, bringing dirty digital delights to private screens on a weekly basis. Uh, she often does lectures, coaching, and advises people on intersexing, intersexing, intersecting issues uh, of sexual health, pleasure, politics, social justice, kink, BDSM, and all the things. When not working, she can also be found marathoning Law & Order SVU under a pile of partners and pit bulls. <laughs> and and uh, yes, she knows that show is problematic. I love it too. Welcome. Hello. And as you can see, and no one else gets the privilege to watch, I am actually currently under a pile of pit bulls. I love that. Times. <laughs> That's like my favorite place, pit bulls and cats or whatever I can, whatever I can fit on the bed. Um, I love Law & Order SVU too. And like, I definitely want to talk about serious things in this, in this podcast, but like, Let's talk really quickly about like what is what it is about liking something that we know is problematic, but like we can't stop watching. <laughs> oh my goodness. I know things that don't hold up. That's the story of our generation, I feel like, is identifying being the first generation to really be self-aware to the point of knowing that what we consumed in our youth is very likely problematic on, <laughs> you know, whatever it is, a racial scale, a gender scale, et cetera. And yeah, I mean, I think. For me, so I have a very like happy anecdote about Law and Order SVU, and then I have a very like sovereign anecdote about Law and Order SVU. But I'm actually going to give you the option for which one you want to select. You can also um, maybe both. both if there's time, but I guess I'll take the positive one first. Perfect. So Mariska Hargitay, the actress who played Detective Olivia Benson, yeah, which is also queen. my my dog's name, by the way. This is Detective <laughs> Olivia. Wow, that's very Taylor Swift of you. I know! I did it first, okay? Um, she was my queer root. She was the first woman I ever saw, like, in any kind of media or pop culture that I felt a twinge of something decidedly more than friendly towards. And so, yeah, she was that, like, strong, dykey-looking, you know, very atypically masculine for a woman, but still respected kind of vibe um, that I, I didn't know I was into at the time. And so the, I, she'll always have a fondness, you know, in, in my heart for that reason. 
But um, she also, she actually runs uh, two amazing organizations, well, two organizations. One of them is um, End the Backlog, which uh, goes to end the backlog of rape, untested rape kits that are like piled up in storage warehouses, um, you know, around the country. But then she also is really into sex trafficking work. And she is one of those kinds of feminists who believe that like no kind of sex work can be consensual. Mm -hmm. And so she's very anti-sex work. And I actually went to go see her speak once in San Francisco and um, she was doing a Q and a at the end and I stood up and like thanked her for the work that she had done. But then I asked her how she was, I outed myself as a sex worker and I asked her how she was giving special sensitivity to um, the cases in which like sex workers, rape kits were treated versus other, you know, folks who were non-sex workers and their rape kits. And if she could speak to like, you know, the justice around that. And she got super uncomfortable and was like, thank you for your kind words. And then took the next question. And I was like, oh, no, no, my hero, my hero. So she's not, she's anti-sex work, but, um, but we can't stop watching that goddamn TV show. Yeah. See, this is why fantasy should sometimes stay a fantasy. Oh my God. I say that all the time, especially in my group sex class. I'm like, listen, (laughs) y'all, I understand you have a lot of threesome and gangbang fantasies and that's great, but do not be surprised if you get to this place of exploration and you realize, oh shit, this isn't actually something I wanted to physically do. Uh, well, I'm a, I'm a Chris Maloney fan. And so I saw him at a, oh a Pussifer concert one time and I was like, okay, maybe my fantasy about him like is real and we could have some like dark, you know, dungeon kinky sex and he likes sex workers. But that was probably a projection for people who like that band. Oh my gosh. I just, I saw him in Wet Hot American Summer before oh, I saw him. So in hot anything. and so creepy. Yeah. Which is like, you know, Janine Garofalo and like such a ridiculous cast in that movie, right? But yes, he's like, he's so, he has such a range that I feel like, and then in Oz, I used to watch Oz like back in the day and I'm like, he has such a range that I feel like is very underappreciated. I think he's like a super anti-Trumper. I might be wrong about that, but I think, I think we can maybe align with his politics. I don't know. (laughs) I'm hoping so. Just pretend so. I guess the ideal would be group sex with both of them. But anyway, moving to the next thing. I feel like we could talk about Law & Order forever. Um, I was like, oh, you opened a can of worms you were not prepared for. Well, I'm prepared for it. I don't know if our listeners are prepared for it, but I would have been remiss if we didn't at least cover that. In a non-segue segue, segue, the other thing that stood out to me about your bio was um, wrestling white men. And I've got to know a little more about that. Well, first of all, for people listening to the podcast, I am myself am white. So in saying that, I am not unaligning myself with white men. It is just that the vast majority of my clients are, and specifically in the bio, it says mediocre white men. So I think I might actually just change it to mediocre men to be more inclusive. But anyway... (laughs) Um, yes. You know what's so funny? I took, I took that out. I didn't want to like edit your words, but I was also like, man, I don't want the white men listening. Like, not that I feel like I need to protect white men, but I do have a lot of white male listeners and clients where I'm like, they're already told so much that like they suck where I was like, I don't know if I want them to know that they're media. Like, what does that even mean? So like, tell me, (laughs) tell me what it means to you. And like, let's talk about it. 
Well, first for all of the cishet white men that are listening, don't worry. Um, I'm sure that you are wonderful. Um, (laughs) No, I think that like we, you know, this is, you're right in a lot of ways. I teach a lot about consent and I think that genuinely right now it has in our culture and in our country's history, it has never been less popular to be a member of the privileged class, including people who have racial privilege or sexual orientation related privilege, that kind of thing. And so I do feel for them, you know, like us, I'm queer identified cisgender men are among the categories of sexual partners that I'm open to having. Um, I have lots of really wonderful healthy relationships with men in my life. And I do a lot of coaching related work around what it means to date and love and fuck ethically as someone who recognizes the privilege that they have in today's world. And, you know, sometimes I have to mask it a little more like, let me teach you how to get women, you know, finger guns you know, than I'd like, but once- That's how you get them in and then you punch them in the face with social justice. That's my lore, exactly. And so, you know, I, um, so I provide a lot of coaching and counseling work, both to men who are in like the younger demographic, a lot of times often um, actually on the autism spectrum, they have some kind of, you know, difficulty interfacing with emotions and communicating Mm. themselves clearly, reading situations between like the ages of 18 and 25. And then I also get a lot, a lot of wives and girlfriends dragging their husbands or boyfriends like in front of me and being like, look, he already has jerked off to your porn. He's going to take what you say seriously. Honey, you need to work with her. (laughs) Yeah, at least they're open to going to you and not seeing that as a threat. Oh yeah, no, it's wonderful. Um, I, so anyway, what I mean to say is that I'm not an unsympathetic ear and I love doing this kind of work with men specifically because I do feel like I ride that line of compassion and understanding and support while also still being able to be critical and give some levity to the entire situation. Right. So, you know, I mean, (laughs) So when yeah, you say, I, when you say coaching, do you mean wrestling or are these separate things? Oh goodness. Yes. Okay. So <laughs> I, am a, I am a sex worker. I wear a lot of different professional hats. Um, I'm a sex educator. I, you know, pre COVID traveled all around the country, um, teaching, uh, everything from sexual health and pleasure to harm reduction, risk assessment, education around safer sex to teaching about cultural, um, sexual minority groups like the queer community, sex workers, et cetera, and then also doing sex worker advocacy and activism um, and working with uh, people around allyship and how folks can, you know, um, how they can identify macro microaggressions against these communities and then further combat them as an ally. And so in doing this, I now teach mostly virtually because it's COVID. And so obviously most of us are not in brick and mortar establishments right right now, but I miss my conferences. I miss all of the the sexuality conferences that I'm used to going to, you know? And um, then I also run a non-monogamy advice column called I am polyamorous and so can you. And that is off my iampoly.net website. And, um, that guy went on hiatus this summer, but we are back. I just bought a house and moved and made a big life transition for the better. And we are coming back next week on a weekly basis. And I'm super excited for that. And then I do perform explicit sex work. So I have been stripping for 
about 12 years. Um, I started when I was like 18 and I've been, I performed in porn, uh, for about six and a half, seven years out in California, Los Angeles, San Francisco, mostly LGBTQ feminist and, um, BDSM kink pornography. And then I also have been doing, um, private professional domination work. And I am very literally a stay at home dom, especially now I run a dungeon out of my house. And, um, so those are kind of all of the different areas of my life as of present. And, um, I also run a virtual strip club, but we'll talk about that later. And, um, so yeah, with the wrestling, I mean that, so wrestling is a, a niche fetish, you know, it it is considered a fetish. Pretty much anything can be considered a fetish. If something exists, whether it's sentient or not, there is a high likelihood that somebody out there has some kind of sexual desire or urge for it. Right. And there are so many fascinating ways that people form fetishes. And I could just read research studies about how these things are formed early on in people's childhoods, you know, and why for like hours and hours. Specifically, what is called fetish wrestling is sought after for a lot of different reasons. Men either enjoy the feeling of being overpowered by like a dominant woman who uses her body to do so. So there's a lot of like humiliation elements of it and like submissive elements of it. Um, a lot of men really enjoy fit women. So people who are like muscle enthusiasts and Mm. guys who like bodybuilders and just the physique and worshiping the, the power of the physique, which I don't get hit up for very often because I am a very lean looking person and folks are like, she doesn't have any muscles. I'm like, I do, I promise. Um, and then there are the folks who come at it from a technical angle. You know, they really enjoy watching not just women wrestling, but um, but women who know what they're doing, women who are experienced martial artists um, mm. or have some kind of uh, combat experience, you know, exercising those skills on either the client or on another woman. Um, and then finally, you just have the people who like watching two women, you know, when it comes to like pornography and things like that, two women in, you know, in wrestling holds rolling around all sweaty and like naked with each other. Yeah. And Um, then there's like the cliche, like lube wrestling in a basement. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Suds wrestling, all of that good stuff. So I used to shoot a lot of wrestling pornography specifically for, um, a website called ultimate surrender on kink.com. And then a bunch of like these little niche fetish wrestling sites. I still do actually, it's the only kind of porn that I still shoot because now I live in Baltimore and unsurprisingly, there is not a bustling porn industry here in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, And then I also get private clients who want to wrestle me. I have about six and a half years of Brazilian jiu-jitsu experience. So that's the predominant background that I come from. Initially, I had no wrestling experience when I started doing this. I had none. And I was like answering weird Craigslist ads in Baltimore, like asking like girls to come basically do underground female fight club and get paid $400 to have it filmed. And the winner got an extra $200. And I was like showing up at like, I was always very like physical fit, physically fit and like very much like a rough house or tomboy type. So mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I can do this. Like I need extra cash. Um, <laughs> that shit was fucking wild, man. I it sounds fun. That. I'm really sad I wasn't in the area no. to uh, reply to that ad. <laughs> 
No, because you got a lot of girls who were coming in there from really desperate situations. And oh, so you got so it women. felt kind of like shady, non maybe non Yes. Okay. Yeah. Like it was just these women weren't vetted. Um, they were selected on how hot they were, essentially, you know. And um and the uh the fights didn't have any rules. It was like all all holds barred, right? So I at the time having no fight experience, I'm like, uh so we're literally just two like aggressive people like being thrown at each other who like really need this money and don't know each other and don't like care who the other person is. Oh, and dang. so it actually and yeah, it actually ended up being really dangerous. And after I got injured, I was like, cool, I should probably start like actually learning how to wrestle if I'm gonna make this a subset of my sex work career. And so that's when I started taking Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. <laughs> Sounds safer. Yeah, yeah, it it really, it really is. I mean, I tell folks, even if you're only, because I also teach people about um, erotic wrestling, and I'm like, even if you're only interested in wrestling from a purely sexual and, like, private, like, kind of kinky experience with your partners, it is so monumentally helpful to just go, I mean... COVID obviously complicates things, but to just go out and take like two or three Brazilian jiu-jitsu classes, just super intro the way the things they'll teach you about protecting yourself and how to move your body. It'll be the difference between you and your wife or you and your husband, you know, accidentally like kicking each other in the face and like breaking a cheekbone or, you know, like accidentally putting your partner to sleep when you really didn't want to, that kind of thing. <laughs> or killing them, you know. <laughs> or, you, yeah, you know, I was trying to keep it light, okay? Or murder. Light. Or, or murder. And there definitely are no, I had to research this a lot too because I also teach about erotic asphyxiation play. And no. there are zero protections. There are zero protections for people in the United States states um who uh if a partner unfortunately passes because of um the result of some kind of kink or bdsm play or during it you will a hundred percent be held responsible for first degree murder there's no um any kind of stipulation for like alternative sexual communities or anything like that so please be careful that's why it's important take classes pay detective olivia benson if you are listening please do one about consensual please do an episode about consensual kink where someone goes to jail (laughs) because of this um or doesn't go to jail yeah i was gonna say i'm sure they did and the person like it was super sex kink negative and the person like went to went to jail for the the rest of their lives you know what i mean no let's talk about it let's do a sex positive one (laughs) perfect perfect why do you think it's mostly white dudes because they're so like at the top of the food chain there aren't a lot of people who like would wrestle them well so i think it's a lot of things and like we can get really like you know i'll try to keep it light we can get really heavy and deep into this right because you know, number one, white men, white heterosexual cisgender men are, it's, it's a fact, it's are, not an opinion, um, in the top percentile of privilege in our country, right? Mm-hmm. And if not the world. And um, so because of that, they tend to be wealthier than other communities of color or immigrant communities that have been like financially disenfranchised or oppressed, um, you know, since since the dawn of time, really. And um, 
So with that extra privilege comes that extra financial privilege. And so, you know, one reason is that white men just have more money to spend, right? My services are expensive. I charge anywhere between $250 and $400 an hour for private sessions, depending on what we're doing in the session. Yeah. And, you know, that comes from me, again, having this, this incredible wealth of over 12 years of, you know, professional and personal knowledge and education around these things. Mm-hmm. But it also means that if you are, you know, economically vulnerable, um, whether pre-COVID or, or, or post-COVID, you know, um, you're not likely to indulge in a sex worker and spend your money that way. So that's just number one. And then number two, generally, like the black and brown folks that I've met have expressed to me, I've been my clients, um, have expressed to me that, you know, it just wasn't ever something that ever would have been accepted, you know, in their, in their family or that anyone would have like understood or anything like that. Like they couldn't talk to, um, you know, their families about sexuality and then, you know, I think the last reason, honestly, is that unfortunately, because of racism, uh, black and brown folks are less likely to hit up sex workers because they're afraid of getting shamed or outed or, um, or judged. They're basically afraid of the sex worker saying no. I mean, mm-hmm. every, every single black or brown client that I have, um, if they read me at white, which I, as white, which I'm very, very Italian. So to some people that reads as being ethnically ambiguous, um, they will be like, the first line will be like, Hey, I just wanted to see if you see black men, or I just oh, wanted wow. to see if you see Hispanic men. So a lot because of folks so have many... been turned away by sex. Oh, workers. absolutely. 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 And you know, just because the sex industry is seen as this very progressive industry does not mean we don't have people who are racist, who are operating within it. And, yeah. you know, still to this day in the porn industry, um, white women will make way more money black if women. they, Exactly. Exactly. Then, well, a they'll make more money than black women. I mean, racism is racist. White people will make more money than black people in porn, in totality, right? But white women will—they will either get told by their agents that they should not have sex with people of color on screen because it will quote hurt their image or like lower their image. Um, so they have clauses where they don't work with black people or brown people, wow. and if you do decide to work with a black or brown person, um, you will get paid oftentimes, especially if it's a white woman working with a black man, she will get paid way more money to have sex with a black man than she would have gotten paid to have sex with a white man. Cause it's harder for so, them to find folks who are willing to do it. Exactly. And it's wow. been so highly fetishized with like BBC and like cuckolding right. porn and like bull mentality. And so it's been so heavily fetishized and that fetish has been consumed by white men who again are the predominant and most privileged demographic when it comes to the consumers um, and patronizers of sexual services, right? So it all like, it makes sense in this nice little wheel that keeps going around. And for people who don't know what that is, BBC is the acronym for Big Black Cock. And uh, can you explain what a bull is? Sure. So in a, you know, cuckolding fantasies don't have to be inherently racist, but in a cuckolding fantasy, it is usually one individual wanting to feel um, humiliated and disempowered uh, and being restrained in some way and forced. And by when I say forced, I have big air quotations. um, Consensually consensually forced. Forced. Exactly. um, To watch uh, their partner have sex with somebody else. 
who usually is being touted as like so much better than them and like able to give them so many more orgasms and the whole bigger dick. Exactly. Bigger dick. Yes, absolutely. I've seen some very, very hot queer cuckolding scenes, but it does oftentimes present in a more heteronormative um, relationship. And so specifically the person who is fucking your wife, right? The person who's fucking your girlfriend, who's fucking your your husband, your partner, exactly. Whomever um, is considered the bull. And while it is sometimes used to describe um, white folks that are doing that, it is more often used to describe black men that are having sex with white women as part of a cuckolding scene. So I mean, I feel like we could spend a whole episode like talking about the the racialization of like cuckolding situations. I know. And that's, you know, that's one of the hardest things about being, you know, black or brown or Asian or fat or any other kind of marginalized group in the sex industry is that you really have to do some serious intentional soul searching ahead of time, knowing that in order to make money in that industry, your body is going to be heavily fetishized and consumed in an objectified way and look some people like that but other people exactly don't exactly some people make their own relationship with that for some people it even turns them on it makes them feel powerful but Mm. for a lot of folks it ends up feeling traumatic at some point this episode is sponsored in part by pour moi french for for me The Intensity by Pormois is an intimate health exercise and stimulation device that exercises and tones your pelvic floor muscles and your vagina. Pormois is offering our listeners $25 off of their intensity when you go to pormois.com and enter code S&S at checkout. They're also having a $40 off sale, so use both to get even more discounts. Their device called The Intensity teaches users how to properly perform Kegel exercises, and it also has a vibrating component for your pleasure. So basically, this product lets you balance feeling good with working hard. Things like the natural aging process, high impact exercises, and childbirth can for some take a toll on the health of the muscles that surround the vagina, causing them to lose tone over time. And studies have demonstrated that a tightened and toned pelvic floor, at least not too tightened and toned, can increase the power and intensity of vulvar orgasms. So go to pormois.com and enter code SANDS at checkout and use their sale for $40 off. That's $25 off plus their $40 off sale when you go to P-O-U-R-M-O-I.com and use promo code S-A-N-D-S. Pormois.com, code S-A-N-D-S. Now back to the episode. I also work with um, a lot of people who are trying to enter and or exit the sex industry. And so that's something that I talk about too, a lot with folks who are interested in getting into it. It's like your best bet is really to pick the thing about yourself that you feel as though you are the most self-conscious. And to, if you have to pretend, pretend, but fall in love with that part of yourself and market it as the sexiest part of yourself. Because that way you are getting ahead of all of the things that you think make you quote ugly or unattractive. And the sex industry is all about finding your niche. So if you have a body that is a niche by definition, then the best thing to do is fucking not only embrace it, but sell that shit for what it's worth. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like it's a, can be a positive way for some people to like change the narrative about themselves and like make it, make it a positive thing. 
Um, mm-hmm. But in talking about niches, so like wrestling, it sounds like is one of yours, but something else that I liked in, in how you describe yourself is that you're someone who helps like normalize alternative desires. Um, in addition to wrestling stuff, what are some other common things that you've seen or worked with in with clients or with coaching clients or with sex work clients um, that some folks would consider alternative? <laughs> Um, well, I think, you know, the easiest thing to say right off the bat is, um, you know, anything that could be defined as a kink or a fetish, right? So anything that is essentially anything that you are attracted to that does not result in, in procreation, right? So that is, you know, in our society, the quote, most normalized fo- uh, kind of sex that you can have would be heteronormative, procreative, missionary sex. Yeah, right. penis vagina and, to make a baby. Exactly. And, you know, women's orgasm, by the way, has never been necessary in this procreative process, which is why it still continues to be devalued today because, you know, the men's orgasm is giving of life or all that bullshit. I'm actually making myself sick saying this, so I'm just going to move on. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so kinks or fetishes, you know, things that you think are hot that definitely are not, you know, for the purpose of procreation. And for some people, you know, depending on your exposure and your experience and, um, you know, how you grew up, your background, your religious beliefs, for some people, you know, a preoccupation with feet is the wildest, craziest, kinkiest, most freaky desire you could ever have, right? But then you have people like me who, oh my goodness, I love foot fetishes. They are the sweetest and kindest and most innocuous um, fetishists, in my opinion. Those and tickle fetishists are like my favorite. Um, but, you know, I'll be having a, a conversation with someone one day about, you know, how I'm going to do like a hook pull on, <laughs> on a client where I like pierce his chest with hooks and like suspend him from a suspension rig. And so really kink is relative, you know, fetish is relative, alternative is relative. You can't really quantify it or even qualify it in any way. It's Mm -hmm. just what makes people feel ashamed is what I would, what I would lean back on. I would just really take it out of an explicit sexual context and just say what people learn as they're socialized, you know, either feminine or masculine, what they learn to be ashamed of. And more often than not, that is tied to our desires, our sexuality, our, you know, our perception of our own body is something that is erotic and deserving of pleasure. Um, the messages that we were told about our body when we were growing up, um, things of that nature, you know? So I just think that we've spent so much time being consumed with what other people do in the bedroom, we've wasted so much time in our lives on this debate, right? On, on sexual autonomy, essentially. And, you know, I don't think it's ever going to happen in my lifetime and I'm still fairly young, but, um, but man, if we all just stopped caring about sex and sexuality, right. And we focus that attention, that energy and that labor towards other causes that would actually better the world. I mean, that would be like my dream, Um, when I think of shame though, it's sort of like a, there's a slippery slope because to me, the, just the right amount of shame is like, or 
taboo is what makes something sexy and exciting, but then Mm. a little too much makes you feel like shit about yourself during or after maybe prevents you from even engaging in that behavior in the first place. So like, Mm. what do you think about maintaining just enough? A little bit of shame. Yeah. Just enough (laughs) to where it's like, that's fucking hot, you know? (laughs) Maintain enough, just enough, um, just enough of that, that, that tension, right. That kind of tension, that taboo tension. Um, that doesn't put you in duress. Right. Yeah. So I think it's really important to internally recognize and accept as a base fact that this in having this desire does not inherently make it's so that I should be ashamed of it. Right. It's not inherently shameful. However, I can learn how to through like learning about kink and BDSM and fetish, I can learn how to rediscover the adrenaline or excitement element of that shame through consensual negotiated interactions where I'm being shamed. And that's where Andre the dominatrix comes in. You know what I mean? So that's it. Yeah. And for this, for this reason, I, all of my little hats, if you will, like they feel so holistic to me because so often I have a domination client that I'm working with as a sex worker and we have like a bunch of sessions together and he's like, Hey, so I saw you were a coach and he becomes a coaching client, like a non-sexual coaching client of mine, or I'll be talking to a strip club customer and, you know, he'll be like, Oh my gosh, like you know, I, I, I've always really wanted to do this with my wife. I haven't actually ever wanted to hire professionals. I've always wanted my wife to do it. And I'm like, well, if you need someone to talk to you and your wife about how to start having these conversations, like here's my card. And then they end up as a coaching client or a coaching client will want to like end the coaching relationship and see me as a pro dom, you know? So I'm like, I'm moving through, I get to know so many people in so many intimate ways. And that is probably the thing that I love is like the trust that I'm given and like the kind of more holistic insight into the people that I work with lives than I think I would have if I were just any one thing to people, if that makes sense. I mean, it sounds like you're like a Renaissance sex worker and that you do all, all of this, all of the things. And what are some of your tips for like how people can start those conversations? Like clearly there are folks that come to you Mm. who have never said what they want to their partner, whether that be like, Hey, I'm interested in non-monogamy or having sex with other people or being wrestled. Um, How can people even start those dialogues for the first time? Sure. So, you know, everybody is in the first thing that I want to say is that everybody is in their own unique situation. And While I absolutely advocate for people coming out, you know, whether it's as gay, bisexual, transgender, kinky, non-monogamous, I also want to pay respect to folks who are in legitimate situations where it is not safe for them to come out because maybe the person they would be coming out to is they're completely financially dependent on or they share children with, or things of this nature. So I do want to kind of recognize the sacrifices that a lot of people in those positions do make. And that Um, it's not so easy just to say, hey, speak up. Exactly. And that those concerns they have are oftentimes extremely legitimate and valid. Um, So that's number one. (laughs) That's my soapbox. Um, But, you know, the first thing I tell people to do is, you know, if, if, starting up a conversation right away with your partner feels really inaccessible to you. You can start kind of like 
dropping things in front of them that they have to um, pass judgment on in front of you, but in a way where it's not you sharing these vulnerabilities with them just yet about yourself. So for example, you know, if you suggest a movie that you know has um, a threesome in it, right? And see if your partner is willing to, you know, watch that with you and then don't comment, just take notice of his reaction to the threesome in the film, right? Um, does he make any positive comments? Does he make any negative comments? Does he get up in the in the beginning of the threesome and go in the kitchen until the threesome is over, right? Like start to notice these kinds of observational cues about, okay, what about my partner might lead me to believe they could be more into this or maybe definitely aren't, you know? Um, like for example, your partner uh, comes home from work one day and is like, oh yeah, I heard at the water cooler that like Ted and his wife are into some really freaky shit. Like, I don't know how they sleep at night. Maybe that gives you a really good indication of how your partner is going to feel about this. Right. And then if you do decide to have that conversation, you know, with your partner, um, lots of things you can do. A lot of people think they have to sit in front of their partner and make direct eye contact and, you know, bear their souls. Right. But there are lots of ways in which you can avoid that very terrifying eye contact um, because, you know, the thing that we're afraid of the most is seeing our partner react negatively to something that we said, especially if it's really, you know, vulnerably about us. So sit next to your partner on the couch and put your hands together or put your hand on each other's legs and stare straight ahead while you talk to each other or back two chairs up against each other and sit in those opposing chairs. And again, you can hold hands over the side to maintain that connection, but try speaking to each other vulnerably that way. Oftentimes it can feel a lot safer and easier. I like the and walk, then, like walking next to each other. Cause it's also this yes. metaphor of like, we're moving forward, like we're moving forward in our relationship. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Like just last night, my partner came home from this like terrible day. And I was like, let's walk the dogs and you can tell me about it, you know, while we're walking and we can like vent about it while we're walking, you know? And I think the last thing that I would say, I mean, certainly I have millions of things to say about this, right? The last thing I would say is to really emphasize the team element of whatever you are proposing. A lot of times folks hear I want to try something and because of their own baggage or their own history, their own experiences, what they actually hear is if you are not immediately fully enthusiastically into this thing, I'm going to leave you for somebody who is. And I mean, what if they do, what if they do mean that though? <laughs> I Because <laughs> you know? like, I definitely have been in situations where I'm like kind of feeling that way. <laughs> Well, first of all, there's there's no excuse for giving somebody an ultimatum. That isn't yeah. fair. Well, um, especially if it fair. took you years to tell someone what you liked, and then you're all of a sudden like, I want this, do it right now, or I'm gone. Exactly. You have to remind yourself of how, again, kind of like you said, mm -hmm. how long it took you to come to this, under A, understanding about yourself, B, education enough to be able to articulate it, and C, courage to tell your partner you can't expect your partner to then respond in a way that is basically just atypical to how human beings process new ideas and concepts, right? And so remember how long it took you and give them time and give them patience to come around if they ask for it, right? 
if it, that feels too open-ended to you or your concerned legitimacy that they may take that as a way out and then just never be open to talking about it because it, quote, always feels too soon, you can propose a specific time limit. Like, hey, listen, how about we give each other two months on this and you can do your own research. Please do your own research. Please, you know, talk to your own you know, people in either in your close circle or find professionals to speak to about this. And how about we have a check-in conversation in two months, right? Not then we'll open up in two months or else, but how about we check in? And that way you're giving it a gentle cap, but not in a way that makes that person feel trapped or that their own timeline is going to be accelerated upon whether they like it or not. You know, and yes, some couples do end up finding at this point, again, whatever you're coming out as, including, you know, being kinky, some couples find this, um, that this is the point in their relationship where they realize their true sexual incompatibility. And this usually happens when sexual compatibility wasn't made a priority in the initial stages of the relationship, as I'm sure you're familiar with in your work. And, you know, now all of a sudden you've been together a year, two years, five years, 10 years, 30 years. And one of you at the very least is being truly sexually authentic and vulnerable with the other for the first time. And now is when you finally give voice to it, you know? So, so yeah, of course that happens. But it also doesn't happen a lot of the time. And what I always tell people is that we always hear when alternative, quote, relationships go wrong. We always hear, you know, with celebrities, like, you know, this person was dating two people and like this one cheated and this one, you know, um, ruined the other one's marriage, right? We always hear about when like things like non-monogamy or kink, when they they end up, uh, a relationship ends up ending. Because when it's traumatic. We always... Yeah. Exactly. When it's dramatic, we always hear about that. We don't hear about the couples oftentimes who actually talk and make it work because they keep that private to themselves. You know, a lot of times they're government employees, they have children, they're conservative, um, they don't want to lose their relationships with their blood families. They're not going to be out you know, talking to people about how they swing on the weekends or talking to people, you know, a state away, right? Like two hours away or how they go to, um, you know, a a kink convention once every year in Germany and tell everybody else they're going sightseeing, you know, they're not going to be wearing those on their sleeves. So the only reason we don't hear about it is because that's just the nature of, of human, you know, condition is to, Leave the bad Yelp review over leaving the good one to pay more attention to the failures. That's a good analogy. <laughs> Leave the bad yeah, Yelp review. Exactly. Like it's just what we want to do, what we feel more compelled to do. So, you know, really have an optimistic outlook. Um, as much as you can battle your anxieties and your fears, have an optimistic outlook. And if you are the person that is coming out to your partner, please emphasize that one of one of if not the most exhilarating parts of possibly going down this road is the fact that you get to do it with them and them specifically and them individually and that you only felt safe coming out to them and not a past partner 
because of the trust and the depth of the relationship that you have. Mm -hmm. And the more that you emphasize the, that this is an adventure you're going to go on together and that your partner's input and engagement on this is just as much, if not more of value than your own, the safer your partner is going to feel. And so, yes, those are my, they weren't, they didn't end up being super quick and dirty, but that's, brevity has never been my strong. Quick and dirty is like never what it ever turns out to be for anything, right? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. It's the story of my life. (laughs) (laughs) I, I still feel conflicted between how do you know when someone's just not sexually compatible versus how do you like ride the waves of a changing relationship, a long-term relationship over time? Well, I think if you've never had ethical, emotionally intuitive sex, pleasure-focused sex, I think that you're honestly unable to make that calculation for yourself until you do. You know, we see so many people who get stuck in patterns because the first and or second and or third relationships that sexual relationships they were in or experiences they had were were, you know, sometimes not consensual, were with people who were just taught to not speak up about their pleasure that they couldn't get exactly. feedback. Exactly. Um, who maybe even, you know, had some bad relationship role modeling, you know, when it came to their parents or the other relationships in their lives growing up. So they never learn because it's not something we still stereotypically teach in schools. Right. They never learned what having a healthy relationship looked like or meant. So I honestly think that like, you know, unfortunately, again, we're still in an era where in the vast majority of school systems in the United States, we're not teaching them any kind of sex ed curriculum whatsoever or consent focused curriculum um, that teaches kids how to communicate with each other, how to date, you know, how to be emotionally intuitive lovers, how to care about pleasure just as much as safety, how to care about their partner's pleasure just as much as their own. We're not having these conversations with young people. And but in that way it's it's like hard to know if someone's incompatible or they're just haven't had this education and they can become compatible once they do this work. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I that's why I always tell folks, you know, my friends specifically, people who I don't professionally work with, you know, I'll tell them, hey, listen, like before you make any rash decisions, about your relationship, have you two just tried talking to each other? And like, if that's inaccessible to you, okay, can you find somebody safe to facilitate that conversation for you? You know, this can be like a formal counselor, or it can be, you know, a very literally a facilitator, um, you know, maybe a close... Or you, yeah, right? No, I'm not, this is not even a plug for me. Oh my goodness. No, but I wanted it to be a plug for you, because like, you know... (laughs) I mean, yes, I do do a lot of that, but like, you know, I'm like, have you tried talking? Have you tried, like I said earlier, sharing um, vulnerably with your partner for potentially the first time in your life, your desires, your current, you know, like the current state of how you feel sexually in your life. And, you know, if they haven't, a lot of times that's the answer they needed not to break up, you know, not to separate. But then other times, like you said, there is a genuine incompatibility there that never would have been discovered 
if they hadn't had those really critical conversations, because guess what? Just because relationships end doesn't mean your, your dating life has to, you can now go on better informed about who you are, what you desire, what you want, what you need, and how to articulate that to a future partner. And now it's going to set you up for success, right? Now you're only going to get better. The more partners you have, the more conversations that are open and vulnerable about sexuality and desire and pleasure you have with those partners. And so, you know, as heartbreaking as that might be to realize we all experience heartbreak, very few of us succumb to it, right? Like you're going to, you're going to be better and you're going to be better in your relationships because of these conversations. Just consider them training wheels. (laughs) Are there things or what are some maybe relationship dynamics you have seen where you're like, you know, this is just never going to be compatible? Or is that so, um, so so broad? But no, no. I'm actually thinking of I'm thinking of very specific clients that I have had. Um, you know, I mean, one was a one was racial. Um, it was a white man and a black woman who got together in high school in the '70s, and the things that this man found very attractive about his wife were very racially charged and highly fetishized. And she didn't have the courage to speak out about that until later in life, emboldened by, you know, the recent like Black Lives Matter movement and all everything that's happening around that. Mm. So that was definitely something that couldn't be overcome. Yeah. You know? Um, you know, and some of those were sexually related. You know, some of those were sexually related. Also people coming out as transgender in relationships, especially long-term relationships um, when they're older in life. Oftentimes their partner is sadly because of the era they grew up in and what they learned or didn't learn about people who are gender variant, they consider that a breakupable offense and don't stay mm-hmm. with their partners. But again, usually means that this other person has space to invite a more accepting and loving person into their life. You know, so I see, I see a lot of it. Same thing with sex workers. You know, people break up with sex workers all the time because of the nature of the work. I I guess then it becomes a question of legitimacy, right? Like obviously, you know, that woman was right for ending that marriage to that white man who had been fetishizing her all of those years. But, you know, can we say the same of the person who broke up with their partner because they found that they did sex work? You know, can we say that that's just as valid? So then it becomes like, what is each person's definition of what is legitimate versus illegitimate? And especially when we get to sexual preferences. And that's not and up for us to decide for someone else. Exactly. Exactly. It gets really, really messy and nasty and mean because there's so much, again, we all we're socialized with so much shame around sex, all yeah. of us, even if we don't realize it. And then I, I know something you talk about and we have to wrap up sadly, but like something you talk about is non-monogamy. So like, that's an option too, right? Like if mm-hmm. I don't want to say this is kind of minimizing it, but like, if you're not getting your need met by one person, like you can open things up, but that can be the beauty of like multiple partners. If it's consensual is like one maybe shines in one area while another shines in a different area. And that can be a beautiful thing. Yeah. I mean, I definitely tell folks again, if they're, if I'm counseling folks on non-monogamy and I'm, I, I go through the, of course, why, how did this conversation come about and why do you want to open up? You know, who initiated yeah. the conversation? What was that for? What did that first conversation look like, et cetera? Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, I make sure that the, that the only impetus for a couple pursuing non-monogamy isn't that they're sexually unsatisfied with each other, right? It is one thing to be like, my life could be enhanced by another dynamic. And another thing to be like, you're not giving me what I want. So I'm going to outsource. What do you think is dangerous about the latter with the outsourcing? Well, it's the, I mean, first of all, what's tried and true about non-monogamy, just like with lots of things, with relationships, with exploring kink, with, um, you know, et cetera, other kinds of alternative desires is that the healthier and more solid and stable of a place that your relationship starts from when you embark on those journeys, the better an outcome you're going to have. The more unstable or chaotic or unsatisfying your current relationship is, the less success you are going to have branching out into whatever it is you are looking to replace that, right? Mm -hmm. I'm polyamorous myself and I describe it as having balance. I don't describe it as one partner replacing a void that's in our pre-existing relationship. Mm -hmm. I describe it as when I'm with somebody, either and, I feel like I have even more love to give than like one person is capable of holding. And I feel like I have an excess of love to give and can hold that for multiple people. And also when I'm just dating one person, I feel unbalanced. And when I have my life is enhanced by what is oftentimes a different or opposite dynamic, Mm -hmm. um, my life feels more balanced and I strive for balance in all areas of my life. So that's what it's always felt like to me. And that's the language that I tend to use around it um, because love is finite. And, you know, despite everything we were taught under like a very, a very, again, monogamous, heterosexual, procreative nuclear family model when we were all socialized as young, you know, that's not something that we should be punishing people for. You know, people are going to have other attractions. It's what they do with those attractions based on the life that they want to live, you know, and sometimes how authentically they want to live that matters. So, you know. Yeah. I feel like I, this was like a coaching session for me. It always is like when I interview folks, but I always like take something from it. I'm like, like, Oh, I got to hit Andre up for like, you know, stuff for, for myself and my partner. Um, but I want people to be able to hire you. (laughs) I just feel bad because it's funny. Most of the podcasts I've been doing like a lot of podcasts lately and, and a lot of them focus on the like more fun or quote, like perceived salacious parts of my life like tell me about the craziest domination client you ever had or like what's like the most embarrassing story from like sex work that you've ever experienced like for yourself and and we just got like really like heavy and real today and like I wasn't expecting it but it was actually a really nice change I think that happens because I'm a therapist. It just ends up like, let's fucking, let's open up. Like, let's get vulnerable. Oh, yeah. You have great leading questions. I did not see any of them coming. um, And they fit so seamlessly into, you know, the flow of the conversation. You're also very good at what you do. Thank you. (laughs) No, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad we could get deep. But I think, look, if Salacious is awesome, I love that. Like, go check out all the things that, like, Andre does. And if you, like, want to see the Salacious stuff, like, buy her content, go to her Patreon. Let's get to those promos. How can people find you and hire you for for all the many variable things that you do? 
the menu of options um, in front of you. Yes. So uh, I am Andre Shakti on pretty much every social media platform. And that's Andre like Andre 3000, Shakti like S-H-A-K-T-I. Um, um, I, I like how you said that. Good. Like it was like <laughs> Andre like Andre 3000 and Shakti like, let me just spell it for you. <laughs> when I was consistently doing porn, a lot of the larger websites, they would um, as part of like the age verification process, um, they would film you uh, ahead of your scene, holding up your ID and like saying your name mm-hmm. and then saying like your your porn name for the camera so that the editors would get it right. Yeah. And so I always, they always would be like, I'd be like Andre, I actually always say Andre like the giant and shock T like the shocker and the letter T and they'd be like, oh, okay, I got it. I got it. Right. Whether it's like you're asking phonetically or for the spelling. Um, but yeah, that's also what I have to say in strip clubs because I go by Andre at work and, you know, you always have like those, those good old boys who hear Andre and then they do the very like comical, exaggerated, let me look at your crotch because that's a man's name. And so I always say Andre like the giant, not Andrea, not Andrea, Andre like the giant. So um, you can find me as Andre Shakti all over the place. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. Um, I am shadow banned on all of these platforms. So in order to find me, you do have to type in my exact handle, which again is Andre Shakti on everything and then hit search in order for me to come up. Um, and that kind of digital censorship is a conversation for another one yeah, of your podcasts. There, there are lots someday. of episodes about that. It's bullshit. Go check them out. <laughs> Thank you for coming. And again, if you listeners want to follow what I'm doing, I'm on Instagram at Sluts and Scholars, on Twitter at Sluts Scholars. Uh, Listen to us anywhere you get your podcasts and don't forget to rate and review because it is helpful and free. Thank you.